This morning, I want to share with you our continued series in the upper room. We've been looking at that conversation. It's an amazing conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. It amazes me because we have, it's, it's one of the very rare occasions that we have the entire evening recorded for us. It, it took how many chapters from, from John 13 to, through John 17 to record one conversation. We rarely get that much of, a, of an insight into one of the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. Usually we get snippets here and there, but here we get the whole conversation, and it takes this many chapters to cover. And we understand why it would get that much attention, because it is of that much importance. Jesus knows that he's about to die. He knows that tonight is the night. This is it. He's got no more time left with his disciples. And so knowing that he only has this very short time left with them, he decides that he needs to share with them the most important issues that he wants them to be ready to deal with for the rest of their lives on earth. He has already introduced them to the kingdom. It is now their responsibility to introduce the rest of the world to the kingdom of God. There's only 11 guys that's going to accept this responsibility to take on the ministry that Jesus has begun. And so it is incredibly important that he share with them the most important things that they need to know to get started. And so we've been looking at some of the things that they talked about that night. We looked at when Jesus washed their feet and taught them to serve one another. The little icons at the bottom represent these themes. Then, then we remembered last week when Peter kind of talked big and he said, man, I'll, I'll die for you. I'll follow you no matter where. I'll do anything for you. And Jesus asked that question. He said, will you really? Because it's easy to say things. It's, it takes a whole lot more commitment to actually do things. And so Jesus said, will you really? And we looked at that question last week. This week, we, we're going to look at the believer's badge. And we're in the 13th chapter. We're going to look at the, just two verses, verses 34 and 35. About halfway through my message this morning, you'll notice that my style changes a little bit. Um, the first half of the message, I want to do what I'm used to and what you're used to, more of a conversational style. But then toward the end of the message, you'll notice that um, I'm, I'm going to basically read from a prepared statement, and that's by design, because there are some things that I, I think that we need to talk about, some things that we need to think about together, and I wanted to be very careful how I worded those things. So about halfway through, when, when you kind of feel like the, the car shifted gears, there's a reason for that, okay? Look with me, if you will. We're in John 13, beginning at verse 34. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. In two verses, look how many times he says love. A new commandment I give you, you love one another. I've loved you. You also to love one another. By this they'll know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I think he, it was important to him that they heard him emphasize the driving force in the life of every believer is love. 
And so on that night, Jesus gave us a commandment. He said in verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. In Greek, there are four different words for love. And most scholars think that, that those four words are used at different times. They have different connotations. They, they have slightly different meanings. And if you look at each of those words, uh, Greek in general has four words for love. The New Testament only uses three of those words. John, the Gospel of John, only uses two. The only two words that John uses for love are phileo and agape. Phileo is brotherly love. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's based on this word. Phileo is, um, is friendship. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I care about you as my brother or sister. It's the, hey, we got this. Agape is the kind of love that none of us could ever have, done, have experienced on our own. Agape love is not within the realm of human capability except for the fact that God who is love loved us first. When God gave to us agape, when he loved us with a real love, we now can share his love with one another. We can agape. Agape is so much more than, than romantic love. It's so much more than brotherly love. It's a great deal more than any kind of human love except when believers have been changed by God, when we become children of God, we now can express godly kind of love. I have shared this with you many times and I'm going to continue to share it with you many more times because it's this important. Love that is real love is the voluntary commitment to the well-being of another. Notice I didn't say anything about feelings. Feelings are a part of romantic love. They're a part of phileo, brother love. But agape love is above and beyond feelings. Regardless of my feelings, my commitment stays true. Agape is a self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. In other words, I am more concerned about what's good for you than I am about my own feelings. And Jesus said to the disciples that night, not phileo, not I need you guys to be buddies, I need you guys to be there for each other, I need you to be a family, no. What he called his disciples and thereby calling us this morning to is agape. And notice that it's not a hope so, it's not a suggestion. He said clearly, a commandment I give you. Jesus commands his disciples 
to participate in and express agape. Voluntary, sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. Agape isn't about feelings. And so when people say, well, we just fell out of love, you don't fall out of love. By that, for that matter, you don't fall in love. You experience a romantic attraction. You experience infatuation. And all of those are healthy, by the way. Not bashing that stuff. But if it's love, you didn't fall into it. You chose it. You decided it. You decided, I'm going to care about that person's well-being more than my feelings. And because it's a decision, it's a commitment, you can't fall out of that kind of love. Romance may be over, but you didn't fall into it. You can't fall out of it if it's agape, if it's love. Agape is not based on those feelings. So Jesus told us, agape one another. Jesus not only gave us a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. It's not just a commandment, it's a new commandment. He changed things that night. You say, well, he had told them before to love one another. He, that you're exactly right, he did. And what he had said to them previously is love your neighbor as yourself. Love the people around you. Love the people with whom you come in contact. Love your, the folks at work. Love the folks at home. Love the folks at the grocery store. Love the people who are, who are cutting you off and the people who are stealing your toilet paper. <laughs> Somebody got to explain that part to me. I don't. He said, love your neighbor. How? As yourself. So look at the fact that you care about your well-being. Now, extend that to someone else. Care about their well-being also. That was the standard he had set for all his disciples. Matthew 22 was speaking to many disciples. That was the standard for the crowd, for all who would follow him. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But tonight, on this night, things change. He knows that he is setting the stage for what will become a worldwide movement of love. And he says to these 11 guys, not just love your neighbor as yourself, but what does he say specifically? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now you don't just love everybody the way you love yourself. Now, he says to his disciples, now you love each other, disciples, the way I've loved you. How has Jesus loved his disciples? This evening started in John chapter 13, around verse 1. This evening started with him saying that Jesus loved his disciples and he loved them to the end. What could that be referencing? Nothing else than the cross at Calvary. How much did Jesus love the disciples? He loved the disciples so much that he gave up glory and he took on poverty, that he gave up heaven and he took on humanity. But even after that, he loved his disciples so much that he cared for them and loved them and taught them along the way that he invited the sinners to dinner. But he loved them even more than that. He loved them so much that he took 
our sin upon himself. The Bible says that he became sin. Jesus' love for us is amazing when we only look at Calvary and we see the innocent one, the Lamb of God without blemish, there dying so that we could have life. And now Jesus says, that kind of love is the way I want my disciples to love each other. That kind of love is the love that you share with one another. A long time ago, I decided that I was no longer going to have any heroes who were still alive. All of my heroes have to be dead. That way they can't disappoint me. So one of my great heroes is Charles Spurgeon. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He was walking down the road one time with one of his friends and he looked up and he saw a weather vane. And the weather vane spelled out God is love. And Spurgeon looked at that and he said to his friend, you know, I don't think I like that very much because that weather vane is always changing and God's love never changes. And his friend said, Charles, you don't understand. You're, not, you're missing the, the message. The reason the weather vane says God is love is that it is telling us that regardless of which way the wind blows, God is always love. Agape. Regardless of which way the wind blows, regardless of how I'm feeling, regardless of whether it's convenient, regardless of whether or not I get my way, regardless of what I think or what I feel or what I want, I am voluntarily, sacrificially committed to the well-being of another agape love. And Jesus says, this is the new commandment. You guys agape one another. Jesus' whole life and his whole ministry was based on that kind of love. And so there's no, there's no surprise that he would call his disciples to base their lives on that kind of love. In 1 John, beginning in, uh, uh, or in chapter 4, beginning at verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his, own, his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. He showed us what love looked like by sending Jesus into this messed up, mixed up world. This is love, he continues. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus gave a commandment that night. It was a new commandment. And there is a purpose for the commandment. There's a reason for it. We find that reason in verse 35. He says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples. This is how they're going to know you're a Christian. If you put that little fishy bumper sticker on the back of your car. This is how they're going to know you're a Christian if you dress up and show up on Sunday mornings. 
This is how they're going to know you're a Christian if you look down your holier-than-thou nose and tell everybody where they're wrong. Or this is how they're going to know that you belong to me when you love each other the way I love. In verse 35, this, by this, all people will know that you're mine, that you're my disciples, that you follow me if you have love for one another. And notice that it's not just a general love of neighbor. This is disciples when you learn to love other disciples. This is when you guys learn to love each other. The world will know you're mine. Back when we had a hospital here in town, the Ministerial Alliance volunteered as chaplains. And each of us would take a, we had a rotation, each of us would take a week. We each got badges, and so when it was, when it was my week to be the chaplain, I'd put my badge on, and then I could go to the hospital, and I had access. I could come and go from all the rooms and where I needed to go, where we kept records and all that kind of stuff. Because I had that badge. They knew who I was when they saw the badge. If I didn't wear the badge, I was still a chaplain, but they didn't know that. In order for people to know who I was, I had to wear the badge. When people see you, do they see your badge of love and know who you are? Jesus said, this is how they'll know who you are when you love like I love. Are you wearing the believer's badge? When people look at you, do they see Jesus' kind of love? Do they see that in our friendships? Do they see it in our church? Do they see it in our homes? At church, we show our badge when we welcome people, when we care for their needs, when we give ourselves in service. But there are subtle ways in which we can hide our badge as a church without even knowing it. About 30 years ago, our church was going through a tumultuous time. But we had one of the best interim pastors around. I might even say he was the best interim pastor I've ever met. He led the church to start holding hands when we sang the benediction song. That simple act was just one of the ways he led our church family to strengthen their unity and express love for one another. A few weeks ago, I asked you to consider ending that tradition. My motivation for asking you to consider making that change was actually the same motivation that began the tradition in the first place. Love. That day I shared with you four reasons why we should consider changing our practice. First, when that tradition got started, the church was much smaller than it is today. Everybody knew everybody. Now, we can't all know each other, which means when we hold hands, we're asking some folks to hold hands with complete strangers. We live in a different time now. And many people are not comfortable holding hands with people they don't know. The second reason I gave you for considering this change was the fact that we have guests and new people almost every week. 
We want those people to feel comfortable. Making them hold hands with someone they don't know most likely makes them feel awkward instead of welcomed. Third, I pointed out that there are some people in our there are some people who just don't like holding hands. I've heard good-natured comments from some of those people for many years. They have patiently endured it for the sake of church unity. Fourth, I told you that we have people with health concerns that should be considered. We almost always have someone in our church family who's undergoing chemotherapy, which means their immune system is compromised. We have a few people who have autoimmune diseases of one kind or another. Since their immune systems attack their own bodies, they have to be extra vigilant to avoid germs and viruses. As a matter of fact, it was one of our sisters with an autoimmune disease who first got me thinking about what we could do to make her and others feel safe. We have another sister who is particularly susceptible to strep. When she gets it, she doesn't just get a sore throat, she gets very ill. My motivation in asking you to consider changing our practice was compassion. I wanted us to do what we could do to make new people feel welcome, people who don't like holding hands to feel comfortable, and people who live with genuine health concerns to feel safe. Some mistook my motivation as fear or a lack of faith. Let me just say to you that if you think this church lacks faith or we make decisions based on fear, then friend, you haven't been paying attention for the past decade. Today, we met for worship in the midst of a universal pandemic. After a great deal of thought and prayer, we decided to meet today, but we took some important steps and made some necessary changes to make sure people feel safe. This is a fluid situation, and I'm sure that we're going to have to change our plans many times before we get through this. But let's agree that we're going to work together to take care of each other, to make decisions based on love and compassion. Even if holding hands is important to you, I'm asking you to stop doing so at least until we get through this pandemic. By the way, the medical experts in this field are all telling us that we're just at the beginning of the outbreak in the U.S. It'll spread quickly. People in our community most likely will be affected to some degree. As we move forward, don't make the mistake of thinking that taking action is somehow a sign of fear or that taking no action demonstrates faith. Simply assuming that we can do what we want and God will protect us puts us in a dangerous position. Our Lord reminded the enemy that Scripture says, Do not test the Lord your God. Proverbs 22 and 3 says, The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Remember, God does not promise to protect the proud. The Bible actually says He opposes the proud. In the Old Testament, Brother Job was a righteous man who knew God better than anyone. And even he got terribly ill. In the New Testament, Pastor Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was not protected from the thorn in the flesh. Scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust. We can all get sick, even those of us who are people of faith. 
This COVID-19 is what health professionals call a novel virus, meaning it's never been introduced into our population before. So none of us has built up an immunity to it. None of us knows what to expect over the next six months or so. We need to make sure that we are adequately prepared and are ready to respond to the needs of those around us with courage and compassion. We must wear our badge of love by making adjustments when required, making sacrifices when necessary, and putting the needs of others before our own. We need to make sure that we're seeing the big picture and thinking long term. Perhaps you're strong and healthy and young. You know the chances of getting really sick are very low. Your concern might not be for yourself, but you have to realize that you could carry that virus and hand it off to someone else who may be susceptible to it. It's not really about you as much as it is about making choices that will be best for those around you. I see a lot of people on social media talking about how many people have died from the flu and how uh, from the flu and how few have died from coronavirus. Remember that you're not comparing apples and oranges. When you look back at other epidemics, you're looking at the figures after the illness has run its course. This current threat is only getting started. So the numbers are really not comparable at all. We have to see the big picture. I've also seen people come in on the fact that there aren't many cases yet, so we shouldn't change anything yet. Understand our concerns right now are not reacting to current problems, but proactively reducing the risk to our community over the next six months to a year. With all that in mind, here's our current plan. We will continue to have worship on Sundays, but we will not have Sunday morning Bible study, what we used to call Sunday school, until further notice. When we meet for worship, we're going to make some adjustments to our usual procedures. We're going to encourage each other to adopt the recommended practice of social distancing. What that means is we're going to encourage each other to stay a few feet away and we're going to uh, instead of hugging and shaking hands, we're going to encourage you to have fun and smile and wave. Later, when it's time for the offering, we're not going to pass the plate from person to person, but we'll have the plates available at all of the exits. I feel like the lady on the airplane. At all of the exits and up here by the pulpit so you can give your tithes and offerings as you leave without too much congregation around any one spot. Our response to this pandemic has to be fluid, and we're, going to be, and we're going to have to be flexible. Things are changing rapidly, and we're going to have to keep adjusting our plan as we go. This morning, I met with our conference and resource committee and got their input on the most recent changes to our plan. Until further notice, we'll not have dinner or any other meetings on Wednesday nights. In other words, Sunday morning worship is the only meeting that'll be held at church for the next few weeks. As we begin this journey together, let's agree that we're going to wear the believer's badge and intentionally find ways to love one another. Stay in touch with those who are most susceptible to the virus. Run errands and get food for our older brothers and sisters so they don't have to risk getting out. Wash and sanitize your hands often, not just to protect yourself, 
but to reduce the risk of passing the virus along. Encourage and support leaders who have to make difficult decisions and face criticism from all sides. Volunteer, if necessary, to help the school district as they find ways to distribute food to the kids. Stay connected with us on social media. Watch for emails, texts, for phone calls so that you'll know what's happening and we can inform you of ways that you can be of help. Relax, keep a sense of humor, and keep praying. Let's all be careful and prayerful. I promise to keep the lines of communication open, to do the best we can to keep everyone informed. I promise to stay, stay flexible, adjust our plan whenever we need to. As your pastor, I promise to accept my responsibility to be proactive and take whatever steps I can to better ensure the health and well-being of everyone in our church family, even if some of those decisions are met with resistance. Let's promise each other that we're going to take care of one another and love each other all the way through this. We've been through some tough times before, and by God's grace, we can help each other get through tough times again.